Well, today is a very special day for a couple of reasons. I saw uh, where it, it, Al, first time in 909 years, this day, I don't know if you saw that or not, the, the date of this day is 0202-2020. Do you know that? I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. That's, the, that's today's date, 0202-2020, February 2nd, 2020. So uh, evidently it hadn't happened since Al was a little boy, a long time ago. But there's something else that's special about today. Today is a Super Bowl. How many 49ers fans do we have in here? Raise your hand if you're pulling for the 49ers. Three, okay. How many Chiefs fans do we have? Raise your hand for Chiefs fans. Okay, seven. How many who could care less who plays and who wins? Okay. All right, the vast majority of folks in, uh, in here today. But you know, uh, if you know, you know what the Super Bowl is, it's a championship game for the National Football League. And to get to the championship game, you don't just get lucky and show up to be there. Uh, you have to focus and you have to prioritize. Getting to be a champion is not something that happens automatically. It takes a great commitment by the coaches and a great commitment by the players. You have to take up and participate in some very disciplined activities like practice and study and you have to exercise so your body can be ready. You also, if you're going to be a champion, you also have to give up things that you really like and enjoy, like sleep. And I saw on TV this week, one man has in his contract, he loves to surf, and he's on a football team, and on, in his professional football league contract is a clause that says, while you're on this team, at no time and no point, at any place, may you surf. If you're going to be a champion... There's some things you have to give up. And you also have to stay extremely focused and extremely prioritized. Every team this year went into the season thinking, we're going to do everything we can and focus to be the champion. And now those teams are down to two. And after tonight's game, there will be only one team that can be the champion. You know, I heard about one man's focus and priority on the Super Bowl when he won a ticket to the Super Bowl. And so he went to the Super Bowl, he found his seat at the very top of the stadium where you have to have binoculars to look down on the field, but he was at the Super Bowl and he was excited to be at the Super Bowl and he looked around and there were people everywhere and he noticed as soon as everybody sat down from the kickoff and the game was gonna start, he noticed that every seat was filled, thousands and thousands of seats were filled, except he noticed right on the 50-yard line, which is right at the middle of the field, the best seats in the house, right on the aisle on the front of the, of the stands on the 50-yard line was an empty seat. He thought, who could ever miss the Super Bowl? Why couldn't they sell that seat? So, so he would watch the game, and he'd look at that seat. He'd watch the game, and he'd look at that seat. Nobody ever sat in that seat. And so finally, about halftime, nobody had sat down. He said, I'm going to go down there. <laughs> Have any of you ever done that at a ball game? Every time I do that, somebody comes up and says, excuse me, you're, you're in my seat. And I have their ticket. So this guy makes his way down there at halftime, and, and he gets to that seat, and, and there's an empty seat on the aisle, and right beside of it, this man is sitting there, and he says, excuse me, sir, is this seat taken? And the man says, no, it's not. Why don't you join me? So the man sat down there, and they talked a little bit back and forth, and, and, and the man says, I can't believe that, that at the Super Bowl, this, this seat remained uh, unsold and empty, and, and, and nobody uh, would sit here. And the man beside of him said, well, actually, uh, that seat belonged to my wife, and uh, we've been to every Super Bowl every single year 
And uh, so this year, uh, she, she passed away, and uh, I didn't have the heart to, to not come, so, so uh, I, I, I had the seat here, and I'm glad you're sitting in it. And a man sits there a second, and he thinks. He says, you couldn't find a friend or a family member that would want to come to the Super Bowl with you? And the man said, well, they're all at the funeral. So that, my friends, is focus and priority. Recently, I had a conversation uh, with someone who's uh, come to Ridgecrest and visited a few times, and uh, it was just talking about a previous church experience they had. I said, well, tell me about the church that, that you've been a part of. And, and they said to me, well, well Pastor Mark, it was, a, it, was a really, it was a friendly church. They had great facilities, had good programs. Everybody was friendly. And I thought they were trying to enlist me to go to that church. They said, but there's one thing missing. I said, what was that missing? They said, I was in that church over 10 years, and I cannot tell you that there was ever one time that I heard a presentation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't be a part of a church like that. Well, listen, God calls His church to be a gospel-focused church. Not just to present the gospel once every 10 years or so, but to be so focused on the gospel, as an NFL player is so focused on the Super Bowl, to be so focused on the gospel that it consumes everything that we do and everything that we are about. To be a church and put a sign out in the yard and build a facility and everybody show up and dress nice and smell good and look pretty doesn't make you a church. It's not automatic. To be a gospel-focused church takes continual effort and action and evaluation. Just like an NFL player has to take up certain things in order to be a champion, there are certain things that a gospel-focused church has to take up in order to be the church God is calling us to be. We have to take up the Scripture. Amen? We have to take up that we're going to pray. We have to take up that we're going to live the life that the Scripture calls us to live. We're not just going to give it lip service. We're going to give it life service. We're going to determine that if we're going to be a gospel-focused church... That we're going to plan and coordinate our worship services and our, our small group ministry and our youth ministry and our senior adult ministry and every ministry that we have. We're going to, we're going to formulate it and, 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 and have it uh, executed to the point that we are focusing the gospel on everything that we do. And we're going to trust God to do great things. I believe that's what a gospel-focused church does. There's also certain things we have to give up. Just like an NFL player has to give up surfing in order to be some, pursue something greater. Uh, there are things that we have to give up. There's three things that we have to give up if we're going to be a gospel-focused church. You might want to write these down. I'll say them fast. There's three things we have to give up. That is me, myself, and I. Because let me tell you something. If we're going to focus the church, if the church is going to be focused on the gospel, it's not going to be focused on me. And so we have to be willing to do that and stay Gospel focused at all times. If uh, you ask any player on the championship team after the game tonight, you go back and say, you know, you, pra you started practicing in July. You had other things you did all throughout the year. You had all these games. You played all these playoff games. And you've come to the Super Bowl. You've given up all these things. And now you're the champion. Was it worth it? 
Was it worth it? I want, I want to see him put a microphone in somebody's face after the game tonight and say, was it worth it? And I don't care who they pick. You know what they're going to say? They're going to say, yes. And if we're going to be a gospel-focused church the way God is calling His church to be, and we are willing to take up things that, that may cost us a little bit of time and, and effort and energy, and we're going to be willing to give up some things like me, myself, and I, and we get to the very end, and we see how God has moved, and we make our way into the pearly gates of heaven, and they put a microphone in our face, and they say, was it worth it? I think all of us would say, yes, it was. To be the church God has called us to be. I, want to be, I don't want to be a part of just a regular old church. Because regular old churches, I've been sharing this with you. I hope you've seen it in the news as well. Regular old churches are declining. Regular old churches are dying and closing up their doors. Regular old churches are getting overrun by the culture. God didn't call us to be a regular old church. And I don't want to be a part of that. Well, in Antioch, in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, a gospel-focused church was established in a worldly-minded city. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We're continuing to look at, at the series of messages from the book of Acts on life on mission because of who Christ is and what He's done in our lives and what He wants to do through our lives. We are now on mission with Him for the gospel. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And, and the message repeats itself over and over and over again. And, and I'm finding myself repeating that message at chapter 11, and by the time we get to chapter 28, you're going to know that message very well when we get finished in about three years of the book of Acts. <laughs> but it keeps us and reminds us of the laser-like focus of the church and God's purpose for the church. Uh, you may or may not have heard of the city of Antioch. It was located about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea, located about uh, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you picture Israel in, in, the, uh, in your mind and, and Jerusalem, go about 300 miles north, about where the Mediterranean Sea turns and, 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 and the curve right there is about where Antioch is. It was the third largest Roman city in the Roman Empire. Large city. About 500,000 citizens of Rome lived there. It was a very wealthy city. It was much like the United States today, in its diversity, in its wealth, in its size, uh, and in the attitude of the people. And uh, scholars will also tell you that Antioch was a very religious city, but it was also a very ungodly city. Well, Pastor Mark, how can it be both? Well, to be a religious city, it is, it's been uh, archaeologists have uncovered that the Greek and Roman and Syrian, those three different levels of, of mythology, the, the gods that they worshipped, the idols that they worshipped, all were found there in Antioch. So it was a very religious city, but it was not a very godly city because they weren't, were not worshipping the one true God. You know, it's possible to be religious without having a relationship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that evidently was what was going on there in Antioch. But in Antioch, this wealthy religious, ungodly city, a gospel-focused church came into existence. And I want to tell you this morning, if it can happen in Antioch, it can happen anywhere. Do you know why? Because the power of the gospel is greater than any power in this world. To change a life, to change a church, to change a culture, and to bring people to faith in Christ. 
So I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. We're going to read just a couple of verses there from Acts chapter 11. And uh, as, as you stand, I want to just remind you that, that of, all the, of all the cities in, in the new, mentioned in the New Testament, Jerusalem was number one as far as mentions, and Jerusalem was number one as far as sending out the gospel to the different parts of the world. The second most mentioned city as far as a thriving church that sent out missionaries was not Ephesus, which we read a lot about, was not Corinth, we read a whole, two whole letters to that, to that church, was not Galatia, which is a region. The, the city after Jerusalem in prominence in the New Testament is the city of Antioch. Because in Antioch, God did a great thing. And I'm praying that in Durham, God will do a great thing. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Very few words describing a great move of God. And our Heavenly Father today, may we look back and see the story of the city of Antioch, the establishment of the church there at Antioch, and may it not only inform us, but may it also encourage us and motivate us to want to do all we can to be a part of a gospel-focused church in Durham, North Carolina, known as Ridgecrest Baptist Church. We thank you, our Heavenly Father. We can look back and see so many ways over the past that you indeed have focused our church on the gospel, how you've used our church to reach out to our community, our city, our state, and even around the world. And Lord, we just want to pray that at this moment in our history, we might recognize, Lord, that you want to do it again, that you want to do it every single day and every single week. And that, Lord, the, the future that we have in the gospel is greater even than the past that we've had because you are always at work working your good and perfect will. So, Lord, I pray that just as we've sang a few moments ago, that you would set our soul afire and you would draw us to a desire to recognize that there are those around us that are apart from God and they do not know Jesus as Savior. And, Lord, you want to use each one of us and you want to use us collectively as a church to be a gospel-focused church, a lighthouse in the darkness of this world, Lord, to bring people to Christ and to grow them in their faith and to use them to reach out still yet to others. As long as there is one person that doesn't know you, may this church be a gospel-focused church. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, the church at Antioch was a gospel-focused church. Let's, let's ask the question, what is a gospel-focused church? Mark, you've been talking about it for 10 minutes now. What is a gospel-focused church? Well, as we read through Acts 11, we find this church at Antioch serving as a model for us as a gospel-focused church. And I want to point out to you three priorities of the church at Antioch, which also would be three priorities for any church, it's going to be a gospel-focused church. Don't you notice, first of all, a gospel-focused church prioritizes gospel outreach. Gospel outreach. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, our priority, not just a part of our program, but our priority is going to be 
getting the message of Jesus to those who haven't heard the message of Jesus, and even to those who have heard, but they haven't believed. And those who have heard and haven't believed, and they're not a part of a gospel community, we want them to come be a part of this gospel community. And if this gospel community at our church is not the right one, we want them to go to another gospel community and find the church that is the right church for them. Because a gospel-focused church focuses on and prioritizes gospel outreach. Now, this, we're still in, we're in Acts 11, but we're still focused in referencing Acts chapter 7. Because just as, 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 as there's many turning points in the history of the church, Acts chapter 7 was a major turning point in the life of the early church with the stoning of Stephen. This man who was, a, uh, many believe, one of the first deacons in the church, was proclaiming the gospel, came at odds with the, the Jewish leaders, and they hauled him out, and they killed him on the spot, and it sparked a, a scattering of believers. And here, years later, when Acts 11 comes along and they're writing the story, they're referencing back to Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, and saying with that stoning, with that, the scattering, people went to this place and this place and this place, and they wound up also in the city there of Antioch. And so I want to, to notice here that they were 300 miles away from Jerusalem. They were not in the nation of Israel, and yet an, out, an outreach-focused church was planted there in Antioch. Let's talk about what happens in an outreach-focused, a gospel outreach-focused church. On one hand, the, in this kind of church, Christians are faithful to share. In this kind of a church, Christians and believers are faithful to take the message that has changed their life and are willing to share it with others. And, and understand, the backdrop is that others who have shared this message have paid for it with their life. That's the reference back to Stephen. Even though it has cost some their lives, the message is still so life-changing and so energizing and so important that people are not only believing it and living it, but they're sharing it with others, even knowing there may be consequences. And, uh, and we see this here in Acts chapter 11. These folks that started the church, they were unnamed. It doesn't say who they were. They were anonymous. We, we think about a church. We think, about well, who's the pastor? What's his name? We think about the, the leaders of the church. Who are the teachers in the church? Who's, the, who's, who's working in the women's ministry? Who's working with the youth ministry? Who's the missionary going overseas? We, we recognize that, that there's a time and a place for names. But, but I hope you understand this. The vast majority of the spreading of the gospel does not take place behind a pulpit. The vast majority of the spreading of the gospel takes place when men and women and boys and girls unnamed in the pages of history, go out and simply live it out and share it with their neighbors and their friends and their loved ones. That's where, the, that's, that's where we see the significance of this gospel outreach. And so, so in, in sharing it, we see they share it in their life. These believers would share in whatever their life was. They would share the message of the gospel. In verse 19, we see it was because of persecution. Even though they were persecuted, they still went out and shared the message of the gospel. In the, in the worst of circumstances, they knew that this message was so important, it had to be shared. How then can we not share this message when we live in the best of circumstances? Don't we have a beautiful facility right here that we're in? Aren't you thankful for the lights that are on? Aren't you thankful for the sound system that's running? Aren't you thankful for the heat and how it worked today? We have, aren't you thankful for the freedom we have? We didn't have to stop and get harassed coming into the parking lot by law enforcement that was against us and taking names and giving it to the... We didn't have to do any of that. And we gather so freely 
And if we're not careful, we'll lose the significance of the reason for which we've gathered when there are others all throughout the pages of history that said, even though it may cost me something, even though they take my name, even though they're here and there. We were listening to a missionary family on Wednesday night in the engaged group at 7. And the missionary family that are living in one of our mission houses was telling us that they had to, they had, the government had set up six cameras to watch them. And, the, and the, they were people assigned to them that they got to know. <laughs> they called them by name. Over the years as they lived on mission in an in a, in a international setting. And even then, they were still willing to go. So we need to make sure that, that we don't fa- when we don't face persecution, we still see, realize the significance of that message to take it out to those that need to hear it. Well, you know, we're not living in a time of persecution but we also need to be mindful to share the message in our home, in our school, in our work, in our, in our, in our social settings, on, on social media, in social circles, and whatever way that we have to share the message of the gospel. We also need to share it as we go to different locations. Some of us have lived, you know, some of you are living perhaps in the home that your parents lived in, and before them their parents lived in it, and now you're living in it. You've always been right in the same spot that you're in. And listen, that's a, that's a wonderful blessing. There are other people that move here and there and yonder. Every two years, it seems like they're moving to a new place. It might be down the street, but every two years, they're going to sell their house and move. But here we see the example set for us that, that as these believers went to new locations in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and, and every other place they went, they were sharing the message of the gospel in different locations. And then they also made a point to share with everyone. To share with everyone. Who am I? To see any person and to say, well, you're not worthy to hear the gospel message. I'm not going to talk to you. That would be, be very rude and, and arrogant of me, wouldn't it? It would also be very sinful. Who am I to look at anybody that may not look like me or talk like me or dress like me or have the same morals and values that I have? Who am I to look at them and say, I'm not going to tell you the gospel because you're, you're not like me. If you'll notice, it says here in this passage that as they went out, verse 19, they went out and at first they were only sharing the message with the Jews. Only the Jews. The gospel had come to the Jews, yes, but the gospel came to everybody. And so when these guys went to to Antioch, they said, I'm not just going to tell the Jews. I'm going to tell the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the Greeks, what we would call the Gentiles. The the, the others would call them the barbarians. (laughs) I'm going to tell them too. And you know what happened? There was a great response. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone and we need to share it with everyone as well. Later this month, we're taking our ministry staff and we're going to a conference sponsored by our Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. And it's an annual discipleship conference. And so we're going to go. We've been going the last several years. We're going to go and spend a whole day at this conference about discipleship. And at this conference, they have some large group settings where, where one speaker will speak to everybody. Then they have these breakout sessions where you can go to, to this class or that class or that class, and they advertise them in advance. And so, so there's, there's one of these uh, th- this year that, that I've not seen before, and one of the sessions that, that we can go to is entitled this, Reaching and Discipling Bohemians in a Postmodern Age. Now, first of all, I don't know what that means. Secondly, I'm not sure that I've seen anybody I would call a bohemian. And what in the world is a postmodern age? I thought modern meant up to date where you are now. 
Well, Rodney wants to go to that one, so he's going to be finding out about, about reaching Bohemians in a postmodern age. Rodney's going to come back and report to us, and if there are any postmodern Bohemians in the northern Durham area, let me tell you something. We want to reach them. Well, in this kind of church, Christians are faithful to share, but in this kind of church, a gospel-focused church, listen, God is faithful to convert. It is God who converts, and not you and not me. It is God who converts, but He has chosen to use you and me to deliver the message by which His Spirit can work and bring about a conversion in the heart and the life and the soul of someone. I'm starting at verse number 22, where it says, uh, this report, the report of these Gentiles coming to Christ, the report of this came to the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to, Sar to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. At Antioch, they were first called Christians. Well, what does a, a gospel-strengthening church do? Because a, a, a gospel-focused uh, uh, church prioritizes strength. It prioritizes gospel strength. So what does that gospel-strengthening church look like? What does it do? Well, there are four or five things right here that I want to mention to you. One is a gospel-strengthening church provides teachers. It provides those that know the faith to educate those who don't know the faith. To educate those who are growing in their faith. And I don't know about you, but I can count on, on, on both hands and then some the number of people who have invested in my life to help me better learn and understand the scriptures. Some of them have been pastors. Some of them have been seminary professors. But the most influential of them have been Sunday school teachers and youth leaders when I was a teenager and those who taught me and poured into me the scriptures. And so... Uh, and by providing teachers, we see the story here that Barnabas was sent to Antioch. The church at Jerusalem said, Barnabas, go check it out. See what's going on and, and, and do what you can to help them up there. And it tells us the qualities of Barnabas there in the first part of verse 24. He had a great reputation. It says he was a good man. People liked him. They, they, they admired him. They, they saw good qualities in him. They saw that he was not a hypocrite. He also was spirit-led. It says he was full of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? There's a verse in Ephesians that says, Be filled with the Spirit. But literally in English it would, it would translate as, Be being filled with the Spirit at all times. Be always allowing the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? And I'm reminded of the guy that said one time, I want to be so full of the Holy Spirit that if a mosquito bit me and he would fly away singing, there's power in the blood. That's how full of the Holy Spirit that I want to be. He also believed in God. It says he was full of faith. That if he went to Antioch, even if it cost him something, he was going to go. Whatever he had to leave behind, he was going to leave it behind. He was going to go and be a presence to teach others there in Antioch. Full of faith. Believing what God could do. And he also served to equip and multiply the ministry. It says he went down to Tarsus to get Saul. We hadn't heard from Saul since he was converted. 
And he was a, a Jew. He was persecuting Christians. He was throwing them in jail. He was giving an approval to Christians who were put to death because of their faith. And we hadn't heard from him in a while. And so once he becomes a Christian, he just goes to Tarsus. And Barnabas says, I'm going to go get him. And I'm going to bring him up here to Antioch. And together we're going to teach people the Bible. And it reminds us of the great way that God can move and work in anybody's life to change their heart and so move them to become something that will bring glory to God even when previously they were being a curse of God. D.O. Moody, the great pastor from the 1800s, said it this way, Put them to work as soon as possible after salvation. Make them a greeter or an usher or work with the children. Have them pass out the hymnals. He said it's better to put ten disciples to work than try to do the work of ten disciples. That's exactly true. So find and multiply the ministry because Barnabas went to Antioch and he strengthened the ministry and he grabbed Saul and he strengthened Saul and Saul strengthened the ministry and it went on and on and on in there. But also notice that a gospel-strengthening church is one that encourages believers. Encourages believers. I don't know about you, but I've sat in, I've sat in some lessons before about, with, with teachers teaching. I've, I've sat in some, ser- in some sermons before with preachers preaching. And I've left feeling battered and bruised. You ever felt that way? And then maybe there's a time for that. But Barnabas here sets the example. He was known as the son of encouragement. He set the example here for being an encouragement to the believers. Verse 23 says that Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He would say to them over and over again perhaps, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Purpose. You see the words on the screen. Say it with me. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I caught you off guard. Let's say it again. Ready? Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was was telling them, listen, you've, you've got faith in Jesus. Stay there. Remain there. Don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give over. Don't give in. Don't give anything. Stay in your faith. But do it in your faithfulness. Make it your faithfulness to the Lord. Not your faithfulness to your team, not your faithfulness to your job, not your faithfulness to your hobby, not your faithfulness to to, to your career, not your faithfulness to anything. Remain faithful to the Lord as a priority in your life and do so with a purpose. The purpose is to wind up at the end hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. The purpose is to, to, as you go to heaven, see how many folks can go with you. It's it's like God has given you a a a double-decker bus And you're the only person on the bus and you're driving. And God says, listen, on the path of life, on the roadway of life, pick up everybody you can and bring them with you. And do it steadfastly. You know what steadfast means? It means unwavering. Don't let anything distract you from living a life that brings glory and honor to God. So so he was encouraging believers. And, you know, we need to be encouraging too, don't we? When you, you, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to encourage somebody else. When you see somebody living the faith, when you see somebody living out their faith, why not make it a point to give them a word of encouragement? I just want to tell you, I notice how, how you shake hands and smile at everybody, even when you're having a bad day. I know that's Jesus in you. I just want to encourage you. I, I want to encourage you to, to find somebody who's, who's struggling in their faith. Put your arm around them and say, Hey, man, I, I know that you're a strong believer. I know right now times are tough. Let me just put my arm around you, and we're going to walk this path together. I want to be here for you, be an encourager. Well, that's also something a gospel-strengthening church does. It provides teachers. It encourages believers. But thirdly, notice it, it takes an investment of time. 
You have to be willing to invest your time if you're going to be a church that is a gospel-strengthening church. Verse 26 speaks of teachers and believers. And it speaks how for a whole year they met with the church and, and they taught them, uh, taught a great many people. There at Antioch, it doesn't say how it took place, but it talks about large numbers of people. Perhaps they all gathered together at the local theater, that, that outside uh, theater on the mountainside there, and, and where they would have uh, political meetings and, and put on, on plays and different uh, types of theater. Perhaps they met there in a large group, and Paul or uh, Barnabas would, would teach the large group. Maybe after they had the large group, they would break down into smaller groups. They'd say, okay, everybody who's 35 and, and under, you go over this way. Uh, maybe today we'll have the women go over this way and the men up that way. And who, however, they would break it down into smaller groups. There's a value in the large group. There's also a value in the small group. There's a value in being around people, and you're not just looking over the back of their head towards what's happening at the front. There's a value in having a time when you can look face-to-face -face at each other and call a name, and you can share your burdens, and you can ask questions, and you can go through life together as believers. That investment of time, meeting in large groups and small groups, and even one-on-one. -on -one. Somebody has a question. Well, come on, let's talk about it afterwards. Let's go down here to the, to the, uh, to the Antioch Diner and grab a cup of coffee. We're going to chat a little bit. One-on-one. -on -one. And being willing to be one who does invest and being, will, being willing to be one who someone else invests in. And the scary part of this is that there's several surveys that have come out recently raising an alarm within the church in America in the year 2020. And the alarm is this, that attendance across the board in churches is declining. Participation in churches is declining. Numerically, it's declining, while numerically, the, the, uh, the population is growing. Uh, it's, it, participation is declining at a moment when the culture is declining, and at a, at a time when the church can be the bright light into a dark culture. And so participation in churches is declining, but we see over and over again in the Scriptures that the thing that strengthens a church and a believer are those times when we come together and we spend time together in that large group worship service, in that small group connect group, in that one-on-one -on -one setting. And so that, that's, a, that's a red flag for the day and time in which we're living. And then also notice you observe the difference. There, there is a difference that is made in the life of someone who truly knows Jesus as their Savior. If you truly know Jesus, you can't be who you used to be. Can I say can't in here? Is that all right, Al? You can't be who you used to be if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And that was noted here in Antioch. In verse 26, the last part of the verse, uh, Acts eleven twenty six, the last part of the verse, it says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. People noticed the change. People were drawn to the change. People had to put a label on the change. In, in the language of the day, the, the Greek language, to put the, the, the ending I-A-N at the end of anything meant that you belonged to the party of what came before it. So if you were a Christian, it meant that you were a party, you belonged to the party of Christ. Uh, there, there's a place in the scripture where, where the, Paul is writing a letter, and he says, some of you say that you're from Paul, some of you say that you're from Apollos, but I'm here to tell you that, you're from, that we're from Christ. We're not Paulinians, we're not Apollinians, we're Christians. We all belong to Jesus. I got to thinking in the, in, in, the, in the church here, if we want to break down and, and people be a part of the party of our staff members. I, I got to Al and I had to stop a little bit because that would be, if, if, if we're going to be a party of Al, we'd be aliens. 
But that doesn't make sense. You'd have to call it an alien. So, the party. Uh, the party of Al. <laughs> Which is just a reminder, we all need to make sure we're part of being a Christian. The party of Jesus. It's not about any one individual. Staff member, deacon, pastor, teacher. It's all about being a part of the party of Jesus. I want to tell you that, that our, uh, 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 we have, currently have a Ridgecrest Baptist Church vision team that's been meeting for close to a year. We've been sharing little tidbits about it uh, uh, every once in a while. We had a report from them back in the fall. And uh, uh, this vision team made up of some staff members, made up of some church members, and we're looking at several different areas of our church seeking to focus and refocus who we are and what we do and what we're all about and to make sure that we are being a gospel-focused church, not a regular old church, but a gospel-focused church. We'll be sharing some things with you more, I think, down in the month of May if we get everything pulled together. Well, thirdly, and lastly, I want to mention that a gospel-focused church prioritizes Gospel generosity. Gospel generosity. When we know Jesus and we grow in our faith, we recognize that what has our name on it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the Lord. My house, my car, my bank account, my clothes, my shoes, my glasses, whatever it is, it's not mine. It all belongs to the Lord. In verse 27, it says this, And in these days, the days of the church at Antioch, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, so the Spirit let them know, a famine's coming. Let's help our brothers out in Judea. They're going through a difficult time because they had had to, they, they've scattered. They've lost everything. So let's take up a collection and help them out. And this reminds us, that one, one of many examples in the Scripture, that when Jesus truly gets a hold of us, we turn loose of a hold of the stuff that is ours, recognizing it really belongs to Him. And what happened is, there was, there was uh, is giving that is spirit-prompted, not, not pastor-prompted, not an arm twist, not a, not a guilt trip, but, but the spirit living within leads us to handle our resources in ways to bring honor and glory to God. It might be to meet a need because of a famine. It might be a missionary need. It might be a facilities need, a program, an outreach, something with the budget or even something ongoing. But spirit-led giving. Let me tell you, in a church where there's spirit-led giving, there's such a great peace and even worship and eagerness and an expectancy that says, I'm not giving to God so that He'll give to me. That's like paying for my blessings. That's not the case. But when I give out of obedience, and when I give because of the Spirit, when I give because of, 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 of what God has called me to do, I know that I'm going to be the recipient of that blessing in the meantime. But, but when people give for all kinds of different reasons, but ultimately it should be because the Spirit prompts us. The Spirit prompts us to grow, the Spirit prompts us to be converted, to become a Christian. The Spirit prompts us to give. The Spirit prompts us to share. So many things the Spirit prompts us to do. I heard a lady say one time about her husband. I said, if, uh, if Bubba ever turns loose of a $20 bill and gives it to the church, it's got to be the Spirit that does it. <laughs> the moral of the story is, don't be a Bubba. <laughs> well, giving that includes... This kind of giving is also giving that includes congregational participation. It's not just 
the Spirit leads. It's just that the, the congregation participates. Like, like I have done on many occasions, you've done this too. You felt led by the Spirit to do something. To share a word, to give a word of encouragement, to pray with somebody, to pray for somebody. And the Spirit prompts to give. And you know, I'm not going to give right now. So it's got to be, it's got to be voluntary and it's got to be proportional. You know, Antioch became a, a gospel-focused church in a worldly-focused city. Think about that. A worldly-focused city. In that city was established a gospel-focused church. I want you to think about the gospel. The gospel preceded the church. When these guys went to Antioch and began sharing the gospel, there was no church. They built a church in response to the sharing of the gospel. It, it, the gospel in Antioch not only preceded the church, but it established the church. And years later, it also described the church. They stayed. They were founded and stayed and remained gospel-focused. Let me just share this briefly if I can. A gospel-focused church keeps the gospel in focus in everything that it does. I want you to think about that. A church that is gospel-focused keeps the gospel in focus in everything that it does. When we plan a worship service, the music and the preaching and the testimonies and the prayer, we do so with the gospel in mind. Not the latest fads of the day, but the gospel. When we plan a program in the church for the youth or the children or the seniors or the preschoolers, we do so with the gospel in mind, asking the question, how can we take the gospel and put it into terms that these folks can understand where they can be in a place to hear and be led by the Spirit and receive the message of the gospel and believe? When we plan activities and when we have our staff meetings, when we have our deacons meetings, when we do everything that we do, we must do so with the gospel in focus because it's all about the gospel. It's not about me, myself, and I. Sometimes that hurts because there's many places for churches to get away from being a gospel-focused church. There are churches that turn away from the Scripture. There are churches that engage in unrepentant sin. There are churches that develop apathy towards the lost. Say somebody will get them. We'll pray with, we're thankful for who we have, but we'll let somebody else reach out to them. I want to ask you this morning, right where you are, just to bow your head and close your eyes. I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. I put pre three prayer requests at the bottom of your listening guide, and I'm going to pray those for us now. I want to invite you to make this your prayer in the days to come. And it wouldn't hurt my feelings if six months from now you came up to me and said, Pastor Mark, I'm still praying those three things. That would be a wonderful thing. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us to continually be a gospel-focused church. Lord, when people drive by and see our sign and when they see our members out in the community, when they hear about the programs and things that we have going on, when people attend our church, whether it's for the first time or they've been here for a hundred years, Lord, I pray that everybody may be able to say that Ridgecrest Baptist Church is a gospel-focused church. And Lord, help us to identify and remove anything that would hinder us from being gospel-focused. Lord, I pray that you would make me, not because I'm the pastor, but even as the pastor, Lord, make me a gospel-focused church member. Lord, that I might be one then whatever role I play as pastor or as deacon or as uh, connect group leader or chaperone for the youth or changing diapers in the preschool or being a greeter and passing out hymnals, whatever I may do, Lord, I pray that, that I may be 
a gospel-focused church member. And I pray, Lord, that you might make this church to grow, to grow larger in number as we see the church in Antioch did, to grow deeper in our discipleship as we see the church in Antioch did, and to be more generous every single day as we see the church in Antioch. Lord, help us not just to read about Antioch, but to recognize that you want the same story to be true at Ridgecrest. And Lord, I pray you'd start with me and with each one who's gathered in this place. We ask it and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.